Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is David Knox, who's a senior partner at Mercer. David, welcome. Hi there. So I thought today we would start with um, a contemporary issue, and that is um, superannuation. We've obviously seen the government um, allow for early access. I think we've now hit over 2 or 2.1 million people have decided to access their super early. Wanted to get your thoughts uh, on, you know, on the purpose of super and some of this tinkering that we've been seeing of, of late. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Well, clearly, as you said, with more than 2 million Australians applying uh, for early release, uh, many Australians have needed the money now. Uh, we've been, we're going through quite un, unexpected territory, uncharted waters, if you like, and some people are desperately in need of that money. However, we must recognise that the major purpose of super is not to be used in the short term. It's there for retirement. Um, it's there for people to take some of their income that they're earning this week, this month, this year, and put it aside for the future. Why do we need that? Well, the, we need it because most of us are going to spend 20 or 30 years in retirement after we've ceased paid employment. We're in a situation where we can no longer rely on the government to pay a pension or a decent income. So people want to maintain their living standards in retirement, and I believe most Australians do, then they need to put some of their money aside this week, this year, for their retirement years. And that's the purpose of superannuation. So, you know, you talk about sort of not relying on, on the government. It doesn't, does it feel to you a little bit contradictory that in one case, you know, the government's allowed some early access and then at the same place, superannuation's designed to sort of take pressure off the government, but now with a number of people um, seeing super as their piggy bank, that that sort of, um, you know, idea around super has been challenged or, you know, that, that Sancrosate style of um, thinking of super has now been, been broken. Yeah, the, the, it, it does. There does seem to be a tension there. I mean, we've got the government allowing people to access their super. We've also got some backbenchers talking about using super for housing or indeed other purposes. I think once we open that door, then there'll be all sorts of reasons why people want to access their super ahead of retirement. Uh, my very strong view is that we need super for retirement. If we don't have super for retirement and we spend it earlier, there are going to be a couple of things that happen. Uh, firstly, there'll be more demand on government in the future on the age pension and other costs. And secondly, there's going to be greater inequity or tension between generations. We do have an aging population. And if this generation of the working population uh, doesn't put money aside for the future, then there are going to be problems. The next generation will just not be able to afford to continue to pay the pension and health costs. It's a really interesting point about sort of the inequity between the generations. And I know there's been some, you know, some some ripples in the in the media around sort of intergenerational wealth issues. And one of them being around sort of the house 
um, you know, the family home and, and whether that should be included as part of super, you know, would, would including the, the, the family home as part of that means test sort of help to try and address maybe some of these inequities that we've seen? Well, certainly I think uh, the home is being given a lot of advantages. It's advantage in the tax system. It's advantage in the means test system in the sense it's being excluded. And therefore, there are perverse incentives for many retirees. Very simple example. If I'm living in the family home that might be worth two or three million dollars and I downsize to a, a more appropriate accommodation, what happens to those financial assets they suddenly reduce the pension I would otherwise get. So there is no incentive for me to downsize. Um, and of course, that has a ripple effect on the housing market, etc. Uh, I think it's quite feasible, uh, perhaps likely that over time, the family home could be included in the means test as part of the assets test. Now, it wouldn't come in immediately. You could start with um, a $3 million home, and then it would gradually not be indexed and affect more and more people. So again, there's an equity argument there. If I'm living in a $5 million home, should the government pay me a pension? Or in fact, should I be encouraged to use some of the assets in my home to generate an income to start to live on? You just mentioned there about sort of how to use assets in the home. I know there was some talk about reverse mortgages. I think there was even a couple of super funds that had looked into it. Um, none of them seemed to go down that path. Can you give a bit more of some maybe a background of, of what's happening in that space? Is, is that likely to pop up again? I think it will uh, inevitably continue to pop up. I think the government itself through the pension loan scheme, which is, has been expanded, uh, is encouraging thinking in that space. I think it's probably appropriate for the government to do it more than the private sector. There are risks in the private sector. If you do a reverse mortgage and the older person through their um, declining abilities doesn't keep the home in a good condition, um, then you could get to a position where the value of the reverse mortgage is more than the value of the home. Uh, so there's lots of moral issues almost related to this. But I think we do need to think through how we can use the home in retirement to provide income in a stable way that does not pose risks to the older person or indeed to the, uh, the lender of the funds. Now, it might seem probably a little bit unfair, but maybe one of the ways potentially is that there, you know, you can get your pension paid every year and it becomes effectively like a lien on the, on the asset value of your house. And then even if your pension goes beyond the house, then you're not you're not liable for any further debts, but the house now ultimately becomes uh, property of the government, and they sell it um, and help to sort of pay that back. You know, would that be a suitable approach? Uh, that is certainly one way of of looking at it, and I think what all that's saying is that we need a much more holistic approach to providing financial support to older Australians. I mean, at the moment we've sort of got the age pension and super, which don't really work together. Um, the means tests have these perverse incentives. Uh, we've got the home, which is, again, separate to that. Uh, we've got healthcare and aged care, which are separate again. Um, so it's a really mixed, complex bag of provision of tests. Um, even the uh, health concession card, we have an income test on that but not an assets test. 
So the complexity is enormous. And of course, we're dealing with older Australians who inevitably have cognitive decline. Uh, that's just to be expected. Uh, that will happen to all of us. Um, we need a system that is holistic, um, that is simple to understand, which no one would claim about today's system. And uh, my hope is that the review of retirement income um, that is happening at the moment will actually put some of these issues on the table. We'll sort of say, let's look at this all again. Let's understand what the purpose of retirement income is. What are we trying to do at the moment? The objectives or purpose of our system is very unclear. So you mentioned there the review of retirement income. I know we heard a lot about it late last year and a little sort of early this year. I haven't heard too much. Um, where is it up to? What's been what's been happening? Yes, my understanding is that they're working very hard uh, on it. Uh, they were due to report to the government at the end of June. Uh, I think they've been given a or agreed to have a short delay there. They'll report to the government probably in late July. Um, that will be a report to the government, not a public report at that time. Uh, I would hope the government will release the report fairly quickly. Uh, the review will not, and I think this is important to understand, will not make recommendations to the government. Um, rather, it will make clear observations or findings. Now, my hope is that these observations will be, as I've said, clear, and they will lead to sensible recommendations and policies. For example, if I come back to the concept of what the purpose of the system is, I would hope they say, well, we need an objective of the system before we determine policies. Well, that would be good. And we're not just talking super here. We're talking about the retirement income system, including the age pension, the means tests, what are we really trying to do? So I think if they argue for an objective and they might even look to international comparisons to see what other countries have done, uh, that might give the government a lead whilst not making a recommendation in itself. So, you know, you, you talk there about sort of the government and, and the government taking sort of feedback. The problem, obviously, that we've seen over the last couple of years is also meddling by governments. How can we potentially maybe help a situation where, you don't have now a change of government and yet more meddling. There's a lot of confusion about sort of superannuation, different tests, different policies that are changing, different um, deeming rates that change at different times. So many things change, you know. Absolutely right, Alex. Ideally, I, I think we have the review of retirement income, uh, the system, occur once every five years. Um, and that could be linked to the intergenerational report. So... Every five years, and again, uh, it was meant to be this year, but next year it's been deferred because of the pandemic, we have the intergenerational report, which is a stock take of our position uh, with the older population, the tensions and the budget, etc. So once we have that report, the government makes a decision, maybe tweaks the policies, but then says, that's it for five years. Um, now, inevitably, Without a political framework, we will have differences between the two major parties. And in some cases, they'll go to an election with a slightly different policy. But I think we really have to get away from the concept of tinkering with the system virtually in every budget and having another review and another review, which just adds uh, less confidence to the system. Uh, people don't trust it. 
and it just continues to um, lose confidence. I saw a survey in the last um, little while of people's confidence and trust in the system. And over the last 12 months, that has declined. And to be honest, that's not surprising because of all the changes that have been happening, um, the decline in market values, of course, with uh, the pandemic. Um, but we really do need uh, a government that, that wants to encourage confidence in the system and stability is a really important part of that. Mm-hmm. Let's transition to sort of a, another issue that comes up with superannuation, which is sort of the investment strategy. When there's so much tinkering, and particularly even the early access that, that's just sort of happened, and you know the the common understanding is that there was no uh, consultation with the super funds, and it was sort of sprung upon them. You know, if they have that now in the back of their mind that this is the case, then that's going to have a long term effect on their investment strategy going forward. You know what? You know what impact um, do you feel that some of these constant changes have had on investment strategy, and ultimately then the goals of you know pensioners hitting particular sure. retirement income at a later stage? Certainly. Well, superannuation is a long-term investment, and if you think of a 20, 25-year-old entering the workforce, they will not see any of their super for let's say 40 years. So it is a long-term investment, and we've got to make sure that the system has that focus. Uh, Why do I say that? Because long-term investments, whether it's um, in the equity market, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's property, uh, long-term investments will generally give a much better return uh, than short-term investments such as cash and bonds. And if we have better returns, uh, that will build up the super and, of course, that will give people better retirement benefits. So one of the dangers with the the tinkering of early release and potentially other reasons that have been mooted for releasing super is that that long-term focus will um, disappear and the trustees of these funds will say, hmm, um, we have to have some money available in case people are going to grab it now. And that shorter-term need for liquidity and the shorter-term focus will actually change the whole mindset of the industry. And um, that, I think, is uh, not a good thing. Um, I I think it would reduce returns. Um, It would also mean that the role of the super industry within the economy uh, would change. Um, It's really important that the super industry invests long-term, and, of course, that means investing in the economy, providing capital for infrastructure and other developments, and that's a really good thing. Um, So I, I think this short-term tinkering does mean that uh, funds are on edge a little bit. Uh, Some people have expressed it as sovereign risk. Um, And and so I think we really need the government to come out very clearly and say, this was a one-off. It was exceptional. We are not going to do it again. Uh, Super is there. It is preserved. Uh, People can access it, let's say, from the age of 60 or when they retire, uh, not beforehand. And I think Um, that will uh, give the industry uh, more confidence for longer-term strategy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there the role of super in the economy. Um, You know, superannuation now has has grown significantly as a percentage of our GDP. I think we're now over 140% of GDP. So its role in the economy is becoming 
you know, much larger. You've mentioned infrastructure as sort of now being a key part. So it feels though, you know, given a lot of super funds invest locally, domestically, um, I think it's what still 30, 35% of the funds, you know, are, are always allocated locally. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's probably a little, well, it depends how you m- measure it. But um, yeah, it's significant investment in the local equity market, but there's also significant and growing investment offshore. Mm-hmm. But but I'm thinking more closer to home. You know, in terms of the huge size of superannuation, it can be it can play a very um, important role as really a pillar to economic growth and investment. You know, whether it's in infrastructure, real estate, even for for venture capital. I know some funds are promoting, you know, the need to invest locally. You know, what do you think about sort of superannuation as as an ability to maybe help with nation building? Uh, early access is one way that the government you know puts a suggested way of doing it, but there are a lot of other ways in terms of being a productive use of of this capital to help build the economy. What are your thoughts about that sort of arrangement? Sure. Um, let me begin by noting that yes. You know, let's call it $3 trillion, might be around 140% of GDP. Um, that's not exceptional in uh, global terms. Um, if you look at um, some of the countries that have better pension systems or the top pension systems in the world, and I'm looking at the uh, Melbourne Mercer Global Pension Index here, um, that Australia ranked three out of 37 last year. The, the two countries above us, uh, Netherlands and Denmark, if you look at Canada as well, um, all these countries have, in fact, even a high proportion of assets in uh, its proportion of GDP. So, you know, around the 150, 170% of GDP, um, some of the well-developed systems are there. Uh, so I don't get overly concerned that, you know, we've got 140% of GDP. I, I think that number will continue to rise. Um and I think what we will see, as you've suggested, is that we'll see super funds um, broadening their investment horizon, if you like. They will look at engaging in different sorts of ventures. Now, whether that's uh, private corporate uh, debt, uh, whether it's, it's um, supporting finances for even things like uh, social housing, um, venture capital, um, there will be opportunities for funds to invest here. Um, and particularly when you think of the, the very low current interest rates, you know, 1%, 1.5%, et cetera, um, funds will be looking for other opportunities to invest. And, and I think that will be good for the economy. I think that will be good for the society. And I think the other thing we should recognise is that by investing offshore as well, uh, we are investing in industries uh, that we don't have in Australia, um, technology industry being one of them, but there are obviously other industries as well. So by spreading uh, our assets more broadly, uh, both in different industries and in different economies, we're actually diversifying that risk, uh, which is a good outcome. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to touch on another issue. Obviously, the pool is getting very large. At the same time, there are parts of the current government that you know would like to see more and more mergers in the space. Um, you know, there, there's benefits from having larger funds and, and more niche players. What do you think? You know, in terms of hitting member outcomes, actually helps to to get you know to hit that goal as opposed to some ideological battle in terms of size and economies of scale. You know, what what's your thoughts particularly? Yes, there? well, I, I think. Um 
running a super fund now is more complicated than ever. Um, compliance costs, regulation costs are inevitably going to increase. Uh, part of that is coming out of the uh, Royal Commission. Um, we had a couple of years ago, the Hain Royal Commission. So I think it's inevitable uh, that funds will merge. They'll merge for economies of scale. Uh, they'll merge uh, because the regulators are stronger now than they've ever been. Uh, and clearly APRA is uh, pushing, putting pressure on funds and trustees with member outcomes, with heat maps and the like. Um, so I think we will see more mergers. Um, that's not to say every fund has to merge. Uh, there are some funds that have particular niches um, and if they operate that in a particular a segment of the labour market or particular industry, um, they may uh, well do, do that well. But I think every fund will be looking for opportunities to uh, reduce costs, uh, to provide a better service, and that may be through outsourcing, it uh, may be through mergers, it might be through partnerships. I think there is a whole variety of ways of doing that. Um, you, you see it in, in other industries. Um, so I think with pressure from the regulator as well as from government um, and indeed from the consumers as well who, who don't want high-cost structures but they want good services for a reasonable fee or ideally a cheaper fee, but let's call it reasonable, um, I think we will see more mergers. Uh, the Productivity Commission recommended the best 10 uh, or top 10. Um, I don't like that idea. I don't think... Um, we need a top 10. I think the danger of that is they would all look alike because they'd be selected on the same criteria. Um, I think in different industries, uh, certain funds will have uh, different features. I mean, if you're, just take Seabus, uh, for example, the, the building industry fund, um, and you have a, compare that to, uh, let's say, a Qantas fund dealing with pilots, uh, very different sets of members very different ways of communicating, uh, very different expectations. So I don't want all the funds to look alike. I think there will be features that are, are different and should be different, uh, but I think we will inevitably see more mergers. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned there about sort of outsourcing and, and costs and so forth. You know, is one way to maybe deal with it, you know, a lot of the cost is around sort of the back-end administration, helping to um, negotiate fees and so forth for managers. Could a lot of this be dealt with from a, um, you know, maybe some sort of a cooperative or, or some sort of a back end, um, you know, to, to try and reduce all the uh, sort of common costs across a lot of these funds? Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you break the costs down, there are two broad areas. One's administration and one's investment or funds management. Mm -hmm. I think in the administration area, um, costs are relatively low. Um, and I think in the, uh, the funds management area, we are seeing that there's always been competition there. Uh, we are seeing different things happen there. Um, Australian Super, for instance, is uh, bringing uh, more investment in-house and other funds are following that. There was also uh, more pressure on uh, negotiations, if you like, with fund managers. So I think there will be a pressure on costs. My fear there is we go to the lowest common denominator. Um, and that's a little bit like us all going out to McDonald's for dinner. Uh, sometimes we are willing to pay a little bit more for a better service. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think the drive to the lowest possible cost 
is uh, necessarily the best outcome. Um, again, we need a variety of funds with uh, different uh, levels of service and different fees. I might make a comment on the international comparison here. Uh, often it's uh, cited that the Australian fee structure is very high internationally. Uh, that's not necessarily true. The OECD does produce some numbers on that basis, but it's very hard to compare different systems around the world. And if you look at the Australian system and compare it internationally, we are more complicated than almost any other pension system in the developed world. Just a couple of very simple examples. Our super funds are taxed, um, and that's quite complicated. Most uh, pension industries around the world are not taxed. They have nothing to do with the tax office. That simplifies it considerably. Uh, we have insurance as a compulsory component of our industry, and we've had changes to that last year um, with the uh, protecting your super and PMF. Now, again, many other country systems have no insurance component. So, again, there's a cost that other systems don't bear. So, we've actually made our system complicated by adding things to it through government decisions, which inevitably brings on extra costs. Um, another really recent example we've just talked about the early release scheme. Now, inevitably, what that drove was a lot of members ringing up their funds, the, the call centres, etc., the helplines, to get more information. Funds had to bring extra people on to answer those calls. Uh, there was no extra fee paid for that. That was an extra cost that had to be borne by the funds and, in a sense, by the members in due course. Um, so government decisions actually incur extra costs and that's often not recognised. Mm -hmm. No, it's, it's a it's a great it's a great piece to the puzzle. I think you know fees is a really funny thing. We're happy to pay premium fees for a whole range of things, whether it's we're you know travelling with planes, we pay extra costs for for more premium service and so forth. And ultimately, we're trying to look for a better outcome. And hence, if we can get the better outcome, we don't mind paying a little premium for it. Um, you know, so I think that is a very clear. Um, piece to that puzzle, which is, you know, fees need to be thought of holistically, which you, you sort of talked about in terms of the complexity. The other piece that I don't hear talked about enough, it's the risk that underlies a lot of these portfolios. You know, there's, a, there's volatility that comes in markets. You know, we, we seem to be very focused with particularly all the heat maps and the league tables and the top 10. It seems to be very much a, a focus on performance and moving further and further away from maybe what we thought about, which was a CPI plus target, you know, CPI plus two, CPI plus three, shouldn't we be sort of setting up a, a situation where, you know, funds have a, a, a default or a balance fund that is looking to hit three PI, th uh, CPI plus three with the lowest risk? You know. Sure. And I think, again, one of the issues here uh, with risk is that we've equated risk to volatility. That's not necessarily the way members see it. Um, for instance, if you take the retired population, um, many retirees say, I can only withstand a 5% drop in the value of my assets. I do not want it to see it fall by more than 5 or perhaps 10%. Now, in a pandemic, in a financial crisis, you will see drops potentially of larger than that. So again, we need to think about 
what, what's the view of risk from our members or our customers' point of view, not just the volatility that the investment market thinks through. So I think there is a different concept of risk there that uh, we need to think seriously about rather than just uh, volatility. Uh, so it comes back to capital value. Of course, when you look at risk again, um, you, you think, oh, well, uh, let's let's take the bank shares as an example. In recent times, uh, many retirees thought the bank shares were pretty safe. They always paid steady dividends. Uh, well, <laughs> that hasn't happened in the, <laughs> in the last six months um, for good reason. But there are different elements of risk that I don't think uh, we make very clear uh, to our members. Does, does that mean that you sort of see a value in, in sort of tail hedging, I guess? Uh, I know a number of funds have said no, um, that, they, that they see this as a long-term, you know, 30-year uh, time horizon, therefore tail hedging is, is not important. But, you know, when you start to think about what you've just mentioned, which is members sort of look at their performance and are really concerned about a 5% drop, then is there a role for maybe tail hedging to play a, a larger part in helping people stay the course and to reduce switching? Well, I think uh, it, it, potentially there, there is that sort of protective role. Um, the, the other way we, we can look at it, I think, is some sort of uh, life cycle investment pattern where clearly people who are 20 or 30 uh, can afford to take more risk because they're in the system for 30 years. The markets will go up and down, but in the long term, you want good return. Um, when you reach retirement years, uh, whether it's 55, 65 or 70, You've still got 20 years to go, let's say, on average, maybe it's 30 years. Um, so you don't want to pull out of all your growth stocks and go straight into cash. Um, but you do want a different form of investment, in my, my view, that has uh, some less risk to it and risk more attuned to the retirees' wishes rather than to the 20-year-old. So I think we uh, need to be cleverer in developing portfolios for different stages of life. Mm -hmm. Her final question, and I think it's still a big one though, is sort of the role of financial advice in sort of maybe helping people, you know, trying to understand their superannuation, understand the investment strategy and sort of stay the course. Uh, that's a really big question. And I, I've got to say that I, I don't think our financial advice system at the moment is serving members very well. Uh, there are lots of inconsistencies with it. I'm not convinced that the Hain Royal Commission recommendations in terms of advice differentiating between my super and choice products made any sense at all. Um, and at the same time, we've got the number of financial advisors falling due to increased educational and other requirements. So I think it um, it's going to fall on super funds to really make their products, particularly for retirees, relatively simple, relatively straightforward. I know this is not easy, um, but communicate them really well so that the level of advice needed actually falls rather than increases. This comes back to the complexity which we started with this conversation. You know, moving into retirement is really complex. Uh, but the products out there at the moment are an account-based pension. Um, you know, yes, we've got a, a few annuities and other products, but basically is the account-based pension the best product? Uh, it's, a, it's a great product, but it needs other things added to it uh, to make it an even better product. 
Um, and uh, we'll see if the review of retirement income uh, makes some findings uh, in that direction. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, David. Thank you, Alex. A pleasure. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.